Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus loves us enough to prepare us for his return. Please, would our hearts be soft to his voice to each one of us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a man standing in a cemetery, he's getting quite emotional. He's looking at a gravestone. And he turns to his wife, who's just come next to him, and says in a choked voice, tell me I've lived a good life. And if you remember that scene, it's the end of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, it's at the beginning of the film, so I, I kind of think it's not a spoiler, but this is Private Ryan. This is the one that I, I can't actually remember how many men died to save in the time of the Second World War. And the last words of the last person to die to Private Ryan, two words, earn this. It's kind of a horrible ending, really. I found that really difficult about the film. But it does capture that sense that all of us have. How are we going to earn the gift that we've given? That's our default thought, isn't it? That's what's going on when people say, tell me I've lived a good life. We want to know we've got to the end and we've done it right. And all of us fear that we will get to the end and realise we haven't. As we said a bit at the beginning, this season in the church this year is not Advent which is about preparing for Jesus' return. That's from December the 1st. This is actually preparing for Advent. So it's preparing to prepare, which is like, you know, stepping it back a bit. But but in the Bible, Jesus does give attention to that mode. So there's bits that talk about what's going to happen when he returns and just presenting us with it and kind of leaving us to make our own conclusions. And there's other bits where he says, okay, well, in view of the fact that I am going to return, this is what you should be doing. And one thing is particularly important to be clear about in Matthew's gospel, is that this season is going to be a long time. We get it twice, verse 14, and then also after a long time when it says he's coming back. The whole chapter, Matthew 25, that we're dipping into, actually the lectionary had the bit before this last week, and next week we're going to have the bit at the end. The whole chapter is addressing this time where we know Jesus is going to come back, and we need to work out what we're going to do. It speaks into that dread that we feel with Private Ryan. I've never met anyone who doesn't have some idea of a good life they could live and some doubt that they've really managed that. Well, Jesus tells us the only way open to us if we want to be sure that we've used our time well. And you'll be pleased to know the focus shifts immediately from us onto him. Verse 14, 15, you can jot this down in the drawing bit. You don't have to draw. It helps you remember. Jesus gives individually without favoritism. Jesus gives individually without favoritism. What's the first difference we notice between the servants? I hope hope you got it. It was obvious. Uh, You don't get much about their character. You get a lot about how much money they've been given. That is literally the only difference. We'd all like to be the servant with the five bags of silver, wouldn't we? And we feel a bit sorry for the person who only gets one, particularly as we know how it ends. But verse 15, 
if we look particularly, not so much as how it's translated here, but literally how it's written, each of them are given money according to his own power. The difference between the servants is much less important than the thing that unites them. They are all the master's servants. He is generous to all of them. They are all recipients at the beginning of the story, not earners. The master entrusts each of them with some of his property. And this is the key point about the difference. He doesn't give them more or less than they can handle. He knows each of them well enough to give them exactly what they need to do his work. Our temptation is Jesus must have favourites to think that. He's given that person over there so much more than me. Or more often, I think, particularly in this country, and this is how I often feel, we look at someone else's life and we think, well, how come they get it so hard? How come I get it so good? And they they have to live like that. We're tempted to feel Jesus is somehow unfair. But the truth of this parable is each of us has been given a unique combination of personality, workplace, group of colleagues, background, life, family, stuff, any number of other gifts. And and perhaps some of them may not feel like gifts to us. Maybe some of us are thinking, what I'm going to tomorrow morning doesn't feel like a gift. But that is nonetheless part of the property that Jesus has entrusted to each of us. When we start to compare our lives with other people's, we begin to forget what Jesus has asked of us. He's sovereign over the huge range of circumstances that make up each of our lives. He's given us today, according to our power, according to our ability, to serve him. And straight away, as we live as church together, that means serving Jesus will look different for each one of us. It will look different in how we order our time. But every one of us can begin with Jesus' very individual generosity towards us. And we don't need to look over our shoulder at someone else's life or someone else's service. Jesus gives individually without favoritism. Next bit, verse 16 to 23. Jesus rewards faithfulness, not productivity. Jesus rewards faithfulness, not productivity. It's not just where the servants begin that's different. It's also the end. The parable, the difference between the first two servants' material output is about 100 kilograms of silver, which is quite a lot, isn't it? You can, use, you can work that out in uh, the footnote. But when every Christian stands before Jesus and he examines their lives, it is guaranteed there will be many, many more differences than that between the different people who are all his servants. And if you're struggling to comprehend how varied it can be to be a servant of Jesus, try reading some of the stories about saints. Because there is no, there's almost nothing they have in common except Jesus. So it's highly unlikely I'm going to be as productive as a CEO of a major multinational company. In fact, I think I can pretty much guarantee that that is not going to happen. And I almost certainly know 
that I won't bring as many people to know Jesus as the prophet Jonah, the most successful evangelist in the history of the world, as far as I can tell. I probably won't discover a new way to build a vacuum cleaner either, like James Dyson. But I, along with all of us here, have a hope of hearing Jesus say, verse 21, to me. Let's read verse 20 to 23 to get the context of it. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I've earned five more. Here we go. The master was full of praise, although that's not there. It's not very helpful to have that there because the point is he says exactly the same thing to this one as he says to the next one. So skip that. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who'd received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. And I've earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. It's the same. Even though the second person's produced less than half of the money. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. When it comes to how we balance all the competing pressures that we have to juggle every day in order to have whatever we think of as a good life, the key question is not how busy we've been or how prolific our output has been. The key question is, have we been faithful to our master, the Lord Jesus? Have we acknowledged every good thing we enjoy in every circumstance of our lives is a gift from him to be used in his service? Have we had his priorities in our daily decisions? It means that a paraplegic can receive the same reply from Jesus as a sports star or a church leader or a Nobel Prize winner. Jesus is interested in whether we've been faithful with the life he has given us, not how productive our life seems to us or to anyone else. Just one important note that I think helps us with this. While we can understand this amount of silver as just money, as just general gifts and abilities, and that's, that's why the talents thing still exists, isn't it? Because talent means what we're good at and therefore people think it must mean what I'm good at and all because it kind of works even though a talent is definitely a unit of money. Okay, fine. That, that's one way of looking at this. But another bit of Bible study points us in a different and important direction because one way that Israel participated in the life of the ancient church was by giving a small piece of silver, half a shekel, And then all of it was melted down and used to form the base of the pillars in the courtyard of the tabernacle. It's a bit like a holy buyer brick scheme. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. In the Torah, people are able to offer their services for a fixed amount of silver. So I think one of the key things to think about when we read passages like this is when Jesus is talking about investing silver, he's referring to how we look after his people. 
And there's a little hint in the way the servants talk because they don't say five more talents. They say five other talents. That's not generally how you talk about money, is it? It's like, okay, well, I've got five other pounds, not like these other pounds. You know, it's the same thing when we're talking about it. It it all pulls together. But these guys say, no, no, here's, here's some other who I didn't have before. So I think what's happening here, symbolically, is these people have so invested in the people entrusted to them by Jesus, perhaps their family, perhaps their neighbours, perhaps their colleagues, that there's a whole load of other people who've come along with them and said, I, I'm interested in this Jesus thing. It also explains those responsibilities Jesus gives them in the new creation. And we see it in Revelation when we read it. There are people who sit on thrones in Revelation. That's some of the stuff in the 1 Thessalonians passage that we're talking about. Jesus says the disciples sit on thrones. There is a beautiful order to the way the new creation will work. If we enjoy and have ability in caring well for others here, there is a mysterious and cosmic way that that unfolds in the new creation. I would suggest that's the only way we can make sense of there being a difference in reward in the new creation because there's so many parts of the Bible that say we're all equally inheritors of eternal life. But some people have shown they can be trusted with responsibility, so Jesus gives it to them. And the people who have less don't begrudge the people who have more. Just like it's good not to be the CEO sometimes in a company. Not everyone wants that. I hope not everyone wants that. I I think that's one of the problems of our age, isn't it? If I was in charge, everything would be great. And then they get there and it's like, whoa, man. That's how Rishi Sunak feels, I think, at the moment, isn't it? A bit. Sorry, I'm just guessing. But, you know, like, not everyone should be prime minister, should they? And, And that's the point. And also, understanding it as people just removes this sense of paradise that I think is around particularly because of the Muslim doctrine of paradise. Uh, Someone I know challenged some Muslims and said, your version of paradise sounds like Vegas. Because it does. You get like 10 virgins or something and people dropping grapes in your mouth. And notice it's only really for men. It's this kind of huge orgy of like pleasure and stuff. That's not what heaven is for us. Heaven is about carrying on the good stuff we enjoy now, which particularly is church. So I think that's one way to help us not fixate on like tasks and abilities and things. It's much more to do with how we love people. Jesus rewards faithfulness, not productivity. And lastly, verse 24 to 30, Jesus punishes slander, not mistakes. We know the final servants handled his master's money very differently from the other two. And as we read his justification for his actions, there are loads of hints that he's not being straight with his master. So verse 24. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. And, and really, he trips up at his first two words. See that? Master, I knew. The other two say, Master, you gave. I knew you gave. The two faithful servants are confident of the master's generosity to them and they trust him to give them responsibilities they can handle. 
The wicked and lazy servant is so sure he's got the master all figured out, he isn't going to risk his neck serving an unfair tyrant like that. The wicked servant's clearly believing and spreading lies about the master. He's concocted this vicious, unfair dictator in his mind. He convinced himself it's better following his own instincts about his master rather than what he's actually experienced of him. And that challenge that the master gives is actually grace even now because he says, look, even what you say doesn't make sense. If you really think I'm that evil, then why haven't you gone and done this really easy thing so that I wouldn't be angry with you? You don't really think I'm like that, do you? You've just invented an excuse to pretend I'm not there. This servant's been entrusted with something belonging to a good master. If he'd had a go and blown it all and said, well, I tried something and it didn't really work, Jesus was like, don't worry, good, good try, just come in. You've done your best. That, that's the kind of vibe that this guy is. But if, if he's looking at him like he's evil and is going to come down hard on him, then he kind of tricks himself into treating him like an enemy when he isn't. If this guy keeps telling himself he's better off stealing way clear of that miser, then he's wasting everything good he's been given. This guy shows us that everything in our Christian life shows from how we see the triune God, flows from how we see the triune God. If he's someone who gives and gives to us, We won't be tempted to regard him as a miser or a tyrant. We won't begrudge him our money or our time or our relationships. It will become an increasing joy to do whatever we do in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We won't be petrified about whether we've lived a good life or not, because everything will obviously be good. And we won't have this anxiety that we should have done that and not that, because we'll have freedom to do what our hand finds to do, to make mistakes, to get it wrong sometimes. But if we nurse our own thoughts of what God is like, our lives will increasingly keep him at arm's length. Do you notice verse 21 and 23? The master doesn't take back the money. Jesus doesn't say, well done, but it would have been great if you could have got one more bag. I have been away a long time. He says they've been faithful with a few things and then he gives them even more. That initial generosity responded to in faithful, if faltering obedience, just means more generosity in eternity. Because does Jesus really need our help to do anything? His kingdom doesn't stand or fall on how much we do. The reason to give and serve in church is just because he's asked us to. And because that's actually the fullest and richest and most joyful life we could have. Not because Jesus is watching our spiritual P&L line like a hawk saying, oh, you better, oh, that wasn't a good day. Make your quota. You have to do it double tomorrow. It's not like that, is he? The way we can be spared that horrible guilt at the end of our lives thinking, I haven't earned this. The way we can rest in what we're actually able to do rather than comparing ourselves to others with envy or inferiority, the way we can actually discover how beautiful and generous our overflowing triune God really is, is to cheerfully do everything in service of him. The weeping and gnashing of teeth at the end is just a natural consequence of thinking of God like that. 
He continues to be generous, but his very generosity becomes the basis of our anger and frustration because we keep trying to see him like he's cross and angry. That really creates hell for this guy. He's already decided what God is like so that he can't see him giving to him. Let's reject that way of seeing. This God gives. And if he freely gives, we can freely serve. Jesus gives individually without favoritism. Jesus rewards faithfulness, not productivity. And Jesus punishes slander, not mistakes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you show us through your son, Jesus, the way to live a good and fulfilled and joyful life that stretches into eternity. Please, will we see your son as he truly is and serve him with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.